All right, so get that Bible open. I want the Bible open. Find yourself in Acts chapter 19. Actually, we want to start and look at one verse in 18. to Kind of set us up here a little bit. And we're going to pick up with what I left out last week, which is what happens to Paul in Ephesus. It's a massive story. It's a major part of what's called his third missionary journey. We talked about that last week, these three trips he takes before he gets arrested and then sent to Rome to await trial. The book of Acts ends with him in Rome awaiting trial, but we know from tradition at least, he will be absolved of any crime and set free, probably goes west to Spain for a time, but under a later Caesar, he will be arrested again and eventually put to death. That's all a long way in the future here. I want you to find now again Acts 18, so just scoop back a little bit, verse 22, just a little ways back from chapter 19, where it says, When he, this is Paul, had landed at Caesarea, he went up to greet the church and then went down to Antioch. That's the end of his second journey. He comes all the way back. He he greets people in the Roman city. He goes down to Jerusalem and he celebrates what I believe is the Feast of Tabernacles. And then he goes back up to Antioch. That's his home base, a Greek city with a lot of Greek Christians where he has been kind of the primary teacher then getting sent out on these missionary journeys. After spending some time there, verse 23, he departed. He leaves Antioch again. And he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. That's his third missionary journey. And we don't get told much about it. It goes by pretty fast. But Galatia, Galatians, right, the book, it's not a city. All the other books are written to cities. Galatia is a region. Now, if you can kind of imagine the Mediterranean Sea and Israel and what we would call Turkey today, that means he went from Antioch, north of Israel, all the way around up and then through Asia Minor. That's Galatia and Phrygia. All the way to the coast where the, the sea starts. And right there at the coast where all the roads from the east eventually lead to hit the seaport that goes all the way to the west, That's Ephesus. Ephesus is the second most important city in the Roman Empire. Can you guess which one's more important than Ephesus? There you go. Very good. Who's in Grant's tomb kind of thing. Uh, It it was, again, a trade capital. It's an ancient city. If you know of Croesus, you ever hear that guy's name? Rich as Croesus and the kingdom of Lydia. In ancient Greek times before Alexander came through and the Trojans and all this, this was where that was. So it's an ancient city. That's had a bunch of ups and downs, but at this point, again, it is massively important. It also houses a major temple that we'll talk about here in a little bit. But he makes his way through to there. After what happens next, we won't read it. The rest of 18, in Ephesus, there's a church. Priscilla and Aquila, who were Paul's traveling companions in his other journeys, have stopped in Ephesus when he went back to Jerusalem. So they're there in that church. And there arises in their midst a new preacher. He's from Egypt, I believe. His name is Apollos, and he's quite powerful. People listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. There's a little bit about how there's one or three moments where he doesn't know what he's talking about. And Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, and they kind of encourage him to be a little more orthodox. And then he goes from there to Corinth. If you read the Corinthian letters, you'll find that after he's been in Corinth, some people say, I follow Apollos, not Paul. 
So there's a little more, you know, I don't dilemma that Apollos has flowing around him. Although Paul tells us that Apollos, no, I planted, Apollos watered. And we recognize historically this guy is an apostle of the church, a true Christian and preacher. But he has moved on by this point. And it happened then, verse, chapter 19, verse 1. Here we are. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, he traveled across the sea to Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, right? We just read this. There he finds these disciples. Um, we didn't read this part. He finds some of them there who have never received the Holy Spirit or heard of the Holy Spirit. They've never been baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They have only been baptized with the repentance, which John's washing with water declares. That's a little bit skewy there. Paul fixes that. He gets them really baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And from there, they go into the synagogue where we heard it read. He reasons for three months with those who are there. We've talked about this a little in the past, but by way of review, the way the synagogue structure would work, you would certainly have rabbi or rabbis who are authorized to speak, right? They're authorized to stand up and speak. But you had, let's say, more of that among the leading men than you would have today, right? Normally, the leading men wouldn't all get up and speak about a scripture. You don't all come with a Bible verse and say, well, this week I read this and it really helped me. We know from Paul's instructions to Corinth in chapter 13 and 14, that is a little bit how early church worked. You all just kind of brought a verse to share and then we all talked about it. In any case, that's what Paul is doing. He's going to the synagogues. He's opening the scriptures. He's a recognized rabbi, yeah, but he's also preaching Christ. And for a while, this goes well. And this idea of the way, remember, the way is how Acts talks about Christianity. And what it means is like the road or the path, the straight and narrow, the safe and secure, right? The way, how you walk. But after a while, some of those who are there begin to speak evil about the way. They speak evil about Christianity. So Paul, he leaves. And those who are with him leave as well. A good old-fashioned rift and schism, yeah? Uh, but this one, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And then it goes by kind of quick, but it's a neat little spot. He sets up shop at this place called the Hall of Tyrannus, which probably was already a Greek philosophical school. The old world wasn't so different from ours, but you certainly had young men who, they didn't have universities and sports to go to. They just had to figure out what life was about. And so they would go and seek out teachers. They would seek out schools. And the whole Greek world was filled with people who professed Plato or Pythagoras or some of these other ancient thinkers. And they would teach about Aristotle, right? And so this is that kind of place. But Paul then goes in there and begins to lecture on Moses, yeah, who is providing for us the prophecies of the risen man, Jesus Christ. The thing I like about this, again, is that if you see it in the right way, he's taken over a school and turned it into a seminary. Yeah? It's pretty neat. Two years he does this. I also love the irony. I mean, can you figure out what the Hall of Tyrannus means? Hall of the Tyrant? I love it. King of kings, Lord of lords, the kind of tyrant you want to learn from, honestly. So that goes on for some time. You got this next bit then that jumps in where, look at the verse, uh, 1911. This is really something if you think about it. God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now, 
I'm pretty convinced that miracles are just generally extraordinary. You follow me? Yeah, yeah. So like Luke's like saying like there were miracles, but then it got really weird. Yeah, and it, it handkerchiefs, handkerchiefs that touch his skin and they fall on someone else who doesn't even believe and they're healed. It's quite a thing that's going on here. And you also have this bit where those who are believing are recognizing that the battle between light and darkness is no small thing. And that if you're going to walk into the light, you cannot bring with you the darkness without it being exposed. And so they come forward with their, well, their former religious ways of life, their activities, their idols, and specifically their magic books. Now, if you don't think such things exist today, I tell you that they do. And they often fly undercover in the realm of like psychology. This tends to be what we call this kind of stuff. Although, would you believe that even some ancient Christians called mathematics magic? Because when Pythagoras teach it, it kind of can be from time to time. Whatever. They bring all their resources from all their many gods and all their many ideas. And they have a good old-fashioned book burning. Which, <laughs> what? What? Yeah. Yeah. Because evil is evil. And if there's a book about being evil, why would you let it remain? The idea that all information and all knowledge is good, that's what the devil said when we ate the fruit. Huh? You don't want knowledge of evil. So they, rather than sell it and give the money to the poor, because then it would just do more evil, huh? they burned it. I'll tell you what, I mean, this could get me killed someday. I've thrown a Koran in the trash. Someone gives me a Koran, I throw it in the trash. I don't want that thing floating around. That's from the devil himself. Why would I give that to somebody else? That kind of thinking is important for us to recapture. Not that we got to go out and burn down libraries or some silly thing like that. But you want to control the inputs into your life. And you don't want inputs from the devil in your life. You want to cut them off. 50,000 pieces of silver. I don't know about you in these economic times. Are you getting into gold and silver? I got talked into gold and silver years ago. I was up in North Dakota, good Lutheran. He owned a gold shop. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I, have, I have a little put away, and I can tell you that the silver piece right now, the average silver piece is somewhere between $18 and $20 a piece. So you do the math, 50,000 times 20. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, which is why what happens next makes sense. There's an industry in this city an industry of selling magic. And it's taken a hit. And then another hit. Because nobody's buying these little silver statues of Diana anymore. Or Artemis, depending on how you want to talk about her. And so, Demetrius, a man who is a leader among the guildsmiths and craftsmen of the city, who makes some of the finest pieces of Diana you've ever seen, he gets them all together and he says, look, guys, if we don't do something about these Christians, our entire industry is going to go away. Our bread basket's going to go away. And he works them up into a fervor. And he gets a bunch of other people into the crowd to think that the Christians are there to tear down the Temple of Artemis. Now, the Temple of Artemis, the Temple of Diana, you can still see replicas of it today, and the, the foundation is there. It was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. By that, what we mean is that there weren't any other temples much bigger than this one. So think of the Grecian style, and then as massive as you can imagine. And that this was the heartbeat of this city. 
He's convincing the people that this is going to be empty. It's going to be a relic. It's going to be gone. And the whole city gets into an uproar because it is the heart of the city. I don't know quite how to compare this to Rockford uh, or, or some of our other cities, but imagine the most central place in the city. What we all identify ourselves with. I don't, I don't know if we could even do this as Americans today. Maybe the sports team stadium. Yeah. Um, but imagine then the fear that that would all be taken away. So this crowd gets into the uproar and they drive out of the city, taking with them two uh, of Paul's companions, whose names are, are mentioned, but I don't have them memorized. Here it is. Uh, Timothy and, oh no, that's not right. I don't want to give you the wrong name. He takes two of these companions. Uh, they drive them into this great big arena. The arena, by the way, held 24,000 people. We think that ancient people were dumb and incompetent. But you go find an arena with 24,000 people. That's a, that's a big, big thing. Yeah. So this place is full of a crowd in an uproar with these two men. And they begin shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So much so that at a certain point, nobody knows why they're there. Demetrius isn't in charge. No one's in charge. They're just shouting, 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 yelling, shouting. Finally, a Jew, I forget his name too. He's written in here somewhere. Uh, he, he's a well-known Jew in the area. He gets up to kind of try to calm the crowd down. He starts to speak and someone's like, that guy's a Jew. And great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great. And it all starts all over again. They shout him down. They don't want nothing to do with the Jews. Now, remember this. While the Jewish people are in control in part down in Israel, out in the rest of the empire, they're not everybody's favorite neighbors. Why is that? Well, historically, they actually don't like you. They look down on you. They treat you poorly. You're not as good as they are. And at this point in history, there's been a bit of a problem in Rome itself. And the Jews have been expelled from Rome as heretics, as a danger to civilization. That's why Achilla and Priscilla leave Rome and end up down in Ephesus. Yeah? So it's not like all these Greeks are really wanting to hear more about the Jews arguing about their religion with the Christians. That's kind of how this will all resolve because uh, the proconsul, the, the leader of the city will finally come out. They'll silence the crowd and they'll say, what's the problem? The whole world knows that Artemis of the Ephesians is great and that we're all serving her here. It's all going to be fine. But this riot, it's illegal. So y'all might just get arrested if you don't go home. They all disperse, it's over, but at this point, it's time for Paul to leave the city. And he will, he'll leave Ephesus. Now, I skipped over a couple nuggets there that I don't want to forget. As I tell these stories, you know, sometimes the piece comes and doesn't. Uh, there's a neat part where they're in that stadium, 24,000 people in an uproar, shouting, shouting, Artemis, Artemis. And you got these two Christians in there that they're like shaking and hitting and all this. Paul's not in there. He's just outside. You know what Paul wants to do? He wants to go in. I'm going to go in and talk. Does that sound good, everybody? All the Christians are like, no, they grab him. They take him away. They won't let him go in. You know, he'll get himself into this stuff later, right? Uh, but they, they won't let him get in. What I love about that, again, is you see how Paul, he just wants you to know. He just wants you to know. It's such a beautiful thing. I'm going to back up here because I skipped over another story I don't want to skip. So we're all out of order. I hope you'll forgive me. But before the riot, before all of this, in the midst of these crazy miracles that are taking place with the handkerchiefs, we got that bit about the sons of Siva. Yeah? 
What do you think about that story? Does it make you a little uncomfortable maybe? It really should at a certain point. Because here you have these guys who are Jewish exorcists. That means that from their ancient historic religion of which we share the same roots, they had come to the conviction that there are evil spirits in the world and that these evil spirits in the world torment humans, possess humans, or sorry, obsess humans, and sometimes possess humans. That is, enter into a human being and take over the faculties of their body. Now, these Jewish exorcists knew this was true. They believed this to be true. And out of their history and tradition, probably going back to before Jesus, they were used to trying to deal with this sort of warfare against wicked spirits. Paul, again, doesn't even have to be there. His handkerchief is taking care of it. And so they realize, well, there's some power in this Christianity thing. But do they go to Paul and ask to be baptized? No. Instead, as you hear, it's, just, it's, it's a funny story. I think it's funny. You know, By the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, right? I, there's not a lot of authority in the statement to begin with. But it is a horror story as this enraged man filled with wickedness says, oh, I know that guy, but I don't know you. And then he unleashes all of himself upon them. And they run from that house, broken people, scraped and scarred with their clothing ripped from them, all by one guy. Now, what that reminds me of is the story of the demoniac. Do you remember this guy? Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee to the north. He gets off and there there's a cave where they bury bodies. However, there's also a man who lives in the cave and he cuts himself with stones and he's in chains because he'll try to hurt things. And so people put him in chains, but he breaks the chains because... Well, Jesus says, who are you? And he says, we are legion. A lot. Many, many demons inside. And again, breaking chains of iron with his human body, a supernatural act. Make no mistake, the demons have the power to enact twisted supernatural realities in this life. To the extent that, don't miss this, The Bible in the New Testament teaches that miraculous signs and wonders after the age of the apostles are signs of false teachers. If I do miraculous signs and wonders to you to convince you that Jesus is risen, I'm a false teacher. And I'm doing it by the power of evil. We're warned about that. that The false teachers will come with signs and wonders to deceive even the elect. That's the predestined, Jesus says, if that were possible because it's not. Mm -hmm. But again, the warfare between light and darkness, the fact that there are evil spirits who inhabit people and speak in the plural, (laughs) it ought to make you perk your ears up when certain leaders say things like, our patience is growing thin with you people. It also ought to make you wonder when you walk about the store or the gas station or anywhere else and you see all these people, many unbaptized, many of them addicted to porn, worshiping idols, doing drugs, getting drunk, living whatever life they want to live and hating most of it. You just have to know they're not alone. They're not alone. And so to go and fellowship with them as if we are the same, that's where we Christians in America got to wake up now. Maybe there was a time, but no more. No more. We go where the demons tread. Now, the goal of today is to convince you you have nothing to fear in this. 
You are not the sons of Siva. You are not Jewish exorcists. You are Christians anointed by God with the helmet of salvation upon your head. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But what matters then when we get there is to see. This is no different today. This battle is still going on out there today. And that's why our prayers in the word of God are so important for us as a people. Because the power that protects us from the enemy is not us going out and saying, be gone, demons. But it's knowing that God builds a hedge around us when he blesses us to be in his body and blood as his inherited sons in this age. Yeah. That it's his work to preserve us. All right. Sons of Siva, it, it, it's, it's quite the story. Back to the riot. Well, it, it calms down and Paul will go on from there continuing his journey. Eventually, he's going to end up arrested in Rome, and that is probably where he writes the letter of Ephesians from. Uh, And he writes it to these people in Ephesus who you can imagine, after being there for two years, he's got some pretty good relationships with them. He cares about them a great deal. He knows that they're going to have some struggle. He wants the best for them. You might remember they get a letter from Jesus in the book of Revelation as well to talk about such things. Oh, I lost my place. Here it is. So what we're going to do then now is go for that bird's eye view through Ephesians. So if you want to try to turn your pages in the Bible to Ephesians, you only got to go to the right about four books, right? First, second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, boom, right there. Uh, Oh, sorry. I skipped Romans. Acts, Romans, one, two, core, Galatians, Ephesians. If you can get there, we're going to look at a few sections today. Um, There's some other sections we looked at the first service. So again, if you want to find those like verse 3 through 10, which is all about predestination and how the destiny of God in you cannot be undone, well, you're going to have to go find that other video. Today, we're going to look at first Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, and then 17 through 23 together. I'm going to go ahead and read that. Ephesians 1, 11. In him, this is Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I'm going to try to break that down for you. Back to the start. In Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance. Jesus is the everlasting son of God. You've been adopted into that kingdom, into that family. Whatever Jesus inherits as the everlasting son of God, you inherit now as a member of his body. And that this, again, is a predestination of you. Everybody is looking for a destiny. Everybody is looking for a hope. Yeah, Jesus says, before the foundation of the world was laid, I knew you. And I intended not only to create you, but to watch you. I knew it would happen. Walk away from me and hate me. And I intended to love you anyway so that you couldn't get away. And you'd have to come back because that's who I am and that's who you're going to be. That's predestination. Now, it's not about whether or not people are going to hell because God sent them to hell from eternity. That's a lie. It's about how from eternity, God intends to save you. That's a promise you can take to the bank. According to the purpose of him, rest of the verse, 
who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why is he saving you? Because he wants to. That's who he is. He's everlasting love. He's not everlasting hate. He is not everlasting wrath. He is everlasting mercy and charity. Huh? So that we, that's Paul and the Jews, first to hope in Christ might be to his praise, but also, again, in him, verse 13, you, Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the Spirit. Now, if we take what we know from the book of Acts a few moments ago about how there were Christians in Ephesus who had not had the Holy Spirit come to them yet, you can understand that when he says sealed with the Spirit, he doesn't just mean by preaching. He, in fact, is talking about baptism at this very point. But baptism is part of that overall good news, gospel, victory cry of your salvation, which, again, is a simple fact that he is risen. Alleluia. So you've heard that and you believe. And, and honestly, that's all that there is. You can be a heretic after that. You can be a heterodox after that. You can throw yourself into hell after that. But when it comes to faith, it's not some mastery of everything in the world and everything that the Bible says. It's a simplicity that when you hear it said that he is risen, you know that's your only hope. Lord, to whom shall we go? If everyone else leaves, what do we got? You obviously are the best thing in the history of the world. And so whatever little doubt or question or darkness I can hide and harbor in my heart toward whether or not Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And as your pastor, I'll say, I harbor that. I have that. It attacks me. Nonetheless, no matter what, he is the one overcoming. He is the one choosing. He is the one willing. So that we all can know we are here not because of us, but because of him and what he wants to do, which is give us this spirit. This inheritance, verse 14 says, to the praise of his glory. Now, if you can just hop over on the page to 17, verse 17. This is so that, so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? There's that word again, in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As I give you these sections this morning, Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, Ephesians 1, 17 to 23, I hope you'll consider making a note about at least one of them that sounds nice and go and read it again this week. And I really encourage you to read it out loud. This section, 17 through 23 of the first chapter, is quite powerful. The idea that the Holy Spirit of God is upon us as Christians in this age so that we would be wise and so that we would see what other people don't see 
is something no one ever told me when I was growing up in Sunday school. Not once. A bunch of games and coloring puzzles. But this idea that the Bible can make you wiser than your enemy, to make you to be able to see above the crowd, because the revelation from God is light that enlightens you. Why do people do yoga and seek Buddhism and go over to India on spiritual journeys? What are they looking for? Enlightenment. They're trying to have their eyes opened. They're trying to have their heart healed. And this is the promise of the Holy Spirit to you, that his wisdom will enlighten you. Now, as you know, here at St. Paul, I've been telling you, there's a real fast track to this. It's called the book of Proverbs. And if you open it once a day, pick one proverb and make a note, you give that a year, you'll see what I'm talking about. It won't just be a head game. It's not a theory. It's not a notebook thing we just put on the wall. We say, that's right, memorize it. It's actual, practical, real wisdom. And this is a promise to you, right? Promise. That you might know through that, look at verse 19. Yeah. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? One of the hardest lessons to learn as a pastor for me has been to stop trying to make the church work. It's really tough. Anyone who gets into this business, well, how on earth did we let it become a business? I got to ask, but it's what it is now. Anyone who gets into this business, it's your bread ticket, right? And so, of course, you want it to function. Of course, you want it to go well. Is it because of the meal? No, it's because of the word. So you give your heart to the word because you believe it so much and you want everyone to believe it, but you also want it to work. You also want it to function. And what I've found is the more I try to tighten my grip upon making things work the way I think they should, the more trouble I've had as a pastor. What you've helped me learn here at St. Paul, what you've taught me here at St. Paul, is it's far better to sit back, pray to Jesus for what you want. Jesus, can I please have some soldiers and a bard some paladins. You've heard me talk about this. Yeah, I want some Christian men who are going to raise some families here. I want someone who will lead us in song. And I wouldn't mind sending a few people away to be pastors as well. Well, in the last year and a half, all that's been happening here at St. Paul. So I sat back and I pray, but I didn't just sat back and I pray. Here's the key. You don't just sit back and pray and then go like this and sleep. You got to watch. You got to watch. Because it's me. No answer, no answer, no answer, answer, no answer, no answer, no answer. And if you don't grab that answer when it comes by, it's going to go right past you. You got to know what you're praying for. You got to watch for it. You got to seize it when it comes. This is, again, the wisdom of knowing revelation, the wisdom that the scriptures will impart to you, which Psalms and Proverbs fast track, fast track to that reality. Yeah. All right. Let's jump ahead here to chapter two, verses 18 through 22. This is skipping over, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? We should all know that pretty well, but don't miss. It's about grace. It's about grace. All right. Chapter 2, 18 through 22. For through him, Jesus, we both, remember this is Jew and Gentile, so hear that as all people, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, plural, are no longer strangers and aliens, that is, far away from God, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, that's the word set apart, holy people, and members of the household of God, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is potent, super potent. The standard sales pitch of American Christianity for the last century has been, if you die, will you go to heaven? Don't you want to? Jesus is how you get to heaven. Yay, believe in Jesus. Now, it's not as though any of that's really untrue, but it's sort of put in the cart before the horse. Because if I'm just going to practice my religion for some other thing in the future, it's not going to be very inspirational right now. But our religion is literally inspirational spirit going into you right now. And that's the real deal. The real deal is that already you and me together and all people around the world through history who trust in Jesus are the temple of Jesus Christ. The temple which in the age to come will be glorified, but which now is already saved. So that, again, if you can imagine, rather than this building being God's house, you are God's house. Because Jesus, by his word, spirit, and sacrament, inhabits you. And that's his desire. Let me give you an example of how this can be kind of weird. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. Every morning, I try to say the Nicene Creed. I follow it up with the Lord's Prayer. And I follow it up with the Ten Commandments. But as I tend to do when I pray the Old Testament, I don't use the word the Lord anymore. Right? Uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Um, instead, I say, I am Jesus Christ, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. I, I put Jesus' name in because, duh, Jesus is Lord. And I like his name. I think we should say it often. We don't say it enough. But as I'm saying that every morning, you know, uh, that thine be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am Jesus Christ, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. It's like, well, I'm not Jesus Christ, my God. But the thing is, well, yeah, I actually am. Not by myself, and not of myself, but as a joint, or a ligament, or a pinky finger, I don't know, as a member of his body. So that the whole creation now, not men, but everybody else out there, the trees, the cows, they don't talk about it, but they do know the difference. Romans tells us that they long for us to be revealed. Right now it's not revealed, it's just by faith. It's here by faith. They want to be revealed. We're going to talk again about that helmet of salvation in a few moments. And the image I'm going to give you, that's what it's going to be like in the world to come. And they're longing for this reality. Hmm? Um, Pardon me as I check back on the text. Uh, So then this reality is already here as the fact that God is indwelling us by his Holy Spirit. We're not just waiting for heaven. We're heaven invading earth now. And it invaded you first to go into you so that you can actually say, by the Spirit, I am Jesus Christ, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You know it's not your doing. It's coming back into your ears. He's speaking to you through you. And we all have this truth. We don't get to go out and like make up the word of God. But you have every right to speak the word of God aloud as if it's your own, as if you've been adopted as a son, because you 
have been. And we together by this great work of grace are being knit not into individual temples. It's not about you individually being the temple. It's about us, not just St. Paul, not just the Lutherans in Rockford, not just the Christians in America, but every anointed baptized Christian through all history are this new temple. And it's growing like a tree out of this age and into the age to come. Yeah. Potent stuff. If that sounded weird and you think I said something heretical, please talk to me. I'll try to make sure this is clear. I do not believe I am Jesus by myself or nothing like that, right? But we are members of his body. And I think we've lost, we've lost just how powerful that is. That when you walk out into the supermarket where all the demons are, Jesus is walking into the supermarket, not beside you, as you, with you, in you, for you, and for everybody else too. Ephesians 2, 18 to 22, potent stuff. Chapter 3, 14 through 21. Here we go. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So that ending section, verse 20, 21, that's what we call a doxology. Paul does this pretty regularly. He's teaching some point that you think is philosophical and very Jewish and very intricate, and it is. And the next thing you know, he's singing a song for three verses. He just goes, blah, Jesus, amen. And then he goes back to his argument. A doxology. He's glorifying God. He's overcome. He's overcome by what it means. Why are we not, is a question I've asked recently. Why have our hearts become dull? Well, that's one to ponder. That's one to ponder. But um, going back to the start of this section, notice how he says that the Father of Jesus Christ is not just an idea or a theory, but the idea that God himself is Father is where the idea of father, not the idea, where the reality of fatherhood comes from. Manhood and fatherhood are not made up attributes of human society that we can change or cast off willy-nilly. Maybe you think, who would do that? I tell you, the people teaching in our universities for the past 50 or 60 years have been doing that, and they've been teaching your kids to think it's normal. If you don't know that, that's why so much of this age has been scattered to the winds within a single generation. We've rejected the headship of the Father. In the house, yes. In the church, yes. Why? Because the devil wants us to reject the Father in heaven from whom all these other fathers are named. But Paul instead bows his knee before this Father yeah, and prays that according to God's, the Father's riches, He would glorify, strengthen, and grant you power in your inner being so you may dwell in your heart through faith grounded 
in love. Uh, let me suggest to you, I, I, won't, I won't belabor the point this morning. Let me suggest to you that we cannot know love if we do not believe there's a difference between a father and a mother. Because frankly, they love differently because one's a man and one's a woman. You have different insides. You have different hearts. You have different brains. That's all science. <laughs> and then to, to know that this is good, that God built you this way, but at the root of all of this, I know, ladies, you feel offended, but the man was formed first as the image of God, and then you were built out of him as the image of God together. But that only works if the man is formed first. If you're formed together as two separate beings, that is not the image of the true God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in our day and age, I cannot emphasize how important that fact is as wisdom, as wisdom. We'll come back to that here when we look at chapter five. Let's move to chapter four. There's a lot here. I don't think I'll be able to get through all of it, but I'll, I'm gonna read verses one through eight and then 11 through 16, and I'll kind of comment as I go. Uh, chapter four, verse one. I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner of the Lord. Remember, he's in prison in Rome, writing back to his friends in Ephesus. I urge you to walk. Remember how walking is the image of our faith and our life together. We're on the way. We're on the road. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Mm. Do you have to become worthy to be called? No. But when he calls you, what does he say? I'm going to make you worthy. You are worthy. I declare you worthy. And so Paul says, well, since that's true, since I know God has said I am a good man, then I will try to be a good man. Yeah? And in that way, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Hopefully you recognize this next section. It'll be coming up in our closing hymn, The Church is One Foundation. There is one body, Jesus' body, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, the resurrection of the dead, that belongs to your call. He is risen. Alleluia. One Lord, not three lords, even though the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Spirit is Lord, Athanasian Creed. One Lord, one faith, which is to say, no, all roads do not lead to heaven. No, not all religions teach the same thing. And if you ever bother to actually compare Christianity to other religions, that becomes so obvious so fast. Only ignorant fools and pompous people say such things. One faith, one baptism. I know there's a Baptist out there who's been rebaptized. What do you do with this text? There's only one. There's only one. What does it mean? What is the one baptism God gives? What is the washing of regeneration? Is it something different than what Jesus meant when he said, go baptize all nations? That's a strange argument. No, I'm pretty sure what it means is that there's only one sign given from God to you to let you know he made you a Christian. And that's that you're convicted and you say, what should I do? And the pastor or the Christian around you says, get baptized. You do it, not because you did it, but because God pulled you into that water so that you would never forget, he sealed you. He sealed you. He washed you. You are, you are his. One baptism. 
one God, not three, one Father of all, who is over all, through all, in all. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're going to skip down then here to verse 11. Verse 7 says grace is given. Verse 11 talks about some of that grace. First, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes, Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And we'll kind of stop there. I want you to go back to verse 11. This is a section about grace being given to the church. And he says that he gave the apostles. That's your New Testament. <laughs> he said he gave the prophets. That's your Old Testament. He said it gave the evangelists, there's some debate about this. Is it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? That's what anyone before 150 years ago would have said. Now we say it's people who go out and knock on doors. They're, they're evangelists. I don't know that we need to fight about that. The word itself means those who speak the gospel, those who speak the victory cry of Christ. Hallelujah. There you go. You just evangelize. Let's do it again. Hallelujah. See, so I, I'm not sure. I can't, I honestly, I'm not sure what evangelist means here. But I know this, I know the next part, shepherds, pastors, and teachers, that's one thing, not two. That's one thing, not two. And it is the new office of the New Testament church after the death of the apostles. Does it mean you have to dress in a funny robe? No. What does it mean? It means that there are throughout history in Christianity, young men, men only, who rise up and say, I believe I'm supposed to preach this stuff. And we who are here before that young man, who are already Christians, having inherited this from the apostles, say, well, what would you say? How about we teach you? And eventually we find out the young man's life is all right, and he knows what he's talking about. So we kick him out the door and we said, woe to you if you ever stop preaching this gospel. That's a pastor or and a teacher. The whole point of this person is not that they have a job and an office in a building. The point is that wherever they go, whatever they do, they're going to talk about Jesus because they can't help it. So if you ever find a pastor who doesn't talk much about Jesus, you really got to ask yourself what's going on. You really do. Yeah. Uh, pastors and teachers are the men who can't help but talk about Jesus all the time and eventually say, I just got to go do this. Yeah. And the church recognizing that says, yeah, that's, that's how God wants the word to spread. We can spend hours on the office of the ministry. We won't, but emphasizing it's a gift for a reason. What's the reason? Is it so the pastors can be better than you? No. What's verse 12 say? To equip the saints. That's you. So the pastor rises up and preaches so that your heart might be filled with the Holy Spirit for this work of ministry. That's just faith. That's just living the Christian life. That then builds up this body of Christ, us, the church that we can see in this time, right? Like an ark, like a ship sailing through time, the body of Christ here. Don't miss also as we get to it, that the body of Christ in the sacrament is what does this to us. 
And the result, verse 14, we cease to be children tossed every way by whatever story comes down the pike. I know this last year has been a certainly a, what would I call it? A, a, it's an obstacle course of stories. Uh, there have been so many stories. Uh, how do you know which one to believe? How do you not get pushed off of your way by the news that you hear? And the antidote is always going to be that in Christ Jesus and in his word alone, you have a sure foundation that can never be moved. So know what that means. And then when someone tries to take it for you, from you, and tell them, no, you can't have my Bible. You can't have my faith. And no, I'm not going to adopt your bad idea. I'm not going to let you tell me that just because you think it's true and you feel really strong about it, I have to believe it too. Huh? That's kind of how it works these days though, isn't it now? And part of that has to do with what we're going to get into in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I'm just going to read this to you and then we'll talk about the next section. But chapter 5 begins like this. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Now a little bit of a warning, it's porneia, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, before any of you who struggle with sin walk away and think that you're condemned, slow down. The point of this is that you shouldn't be able to walk into a Christian church and hear the guys talking about porn and sharing it. We should be trying not to. We should be fighting back against the winds of this age pressing in on us. When we see these movies that show women in objective ways, and most of them do these days, we should be bothered by it. And we should push back against the dehumanizing of us, the making of us all into objects for consumption. Yeah, That's the real threat. And so that we here are a people who would be different, who want to walk different. I'll tell you a really sad story. I had... Have, how do you say it? A lifetime addiction to porn? I'm clean right now. Huh? But I mean, I know. I know the slavery of that thing. Huh? Know it well. And I know what it's like to try to get away and not be able to get away. And I know that even when you get away, you can't help it. I, I saw porn two weeks ago. In the last place I would have ever thought to see it. My Gmail inbox. Gmail is pretty good about skewing this stuff out. I've used it for decades. Never had a porn thing come through. Right in my main inbox. Click to, I don't even think about it. I click because it's always safe in there. I click on it. Bam, in my face. Dear God, what's that? I remember when I used to want to look at that. I was very thankful when it happened. I was angry. Huh. Now, to get to that point, it wasn't in a day. And I'll tell you, to get to that point, I had to, at various times in life, cut off those things that were in the way. Man, if you're having trouble with porn, turn off the internet. Period. Turn it off. Give yourself two weeks. Get out of there. Yeah? Get out of there. 
and then consider how to walk. And I say this to you who are watching here especially, because I know that this world is filled with people who spend more time on the internet than in the real life. And I know that young men on the internet, and now these days, you know these facts? It used to be just men. If you're under 20, under 25 right now, girls and boys are equally addicted to porn. They're all watching it. All those kids in school, you know why they're doing what they're doing? is because they're watching. That should not be named among us. We should not be a people who say that's okay. That's the point. So wherever you are in your fight, I'm not worried about it as long as you're in your fight. Yeah? And then you know, predestined in grace, God fights for you. He's not going to leave you down in the muck. He's going to pull you out with confidence. Yeah? Amen, amen. Somebody testify? Uh, Thank you, thank you. Let's look at now verses 15 through 21, where it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. It's not a safe place to live. There are a lot of jeopardy out there, not just to your livelihood, but to your spiritual faith. And one of the biggest ones of all right now, I've already mentioned it, now we're going to emphasize it, is failing to know the difference between a man and a woman. Chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. I'm not going to read it out loud. I highly recommend it. Whenever someone gets married, I spend a lot of time in this passage with them because it says very clearly that man is man and woman is woman. But it's also one of those passages that, oh, in most LCMS corners I've been in, there's not a few who say, it's a bit old fashioned. Ah, that once upon a time, you know, men were the head of women in the household, but that was, that was wrong. And now we know better. We're smarter people now. We're modern. I mean, look at all the great things we can do. Now, maybe that argument rings a bit hollow these days. It should. But I've heard it more than once from my own people in pews since being ordained that I shouldn't teach what this section says. I'm going to teach it now, not not word for word. I'm going to go very simply here, okay? God made man first. By that fact, man is man, not woman, and woman doesn't even exist yet. Man just exists. Then God gave woman to man from man so that man would not be alone and so that man would have more men so as not to be alone. That is, from man's side comes woman, from woman's womb comes sons and daughters. This idea is so central that most civilizations, Christian or non, kind of figured out how that works. But right now, it's crazy talk, right? Right now, how could you ever believe such a thing? And, And all the more, again, in your marriage at home, in your house at home, I would suggest to you, you can't avoid diminishing the value of the man in the house and overemphasizing the value of the woman because it's just in the water right now. It's just in the water. Hmm. I don't know if I want to say this, but I think I'm going to. Uh, about six months, eight months ago, oh, a year now, right? We started a men's group at church to try to get the men together. You know, and I made some noise about it. It wasn't a week before I was asked, Pastor, why is there nothing for women? There was already something for women. There was already something for women. Why is that? Why is it not okay for men to stand up? And I don't think you're the enemy here. I think you're those who are starting to. You're those who are realizing it's better to have a good man going in front. 
That's really what you want out of life. Yeah? You don't want to be shoved out in front of the women in a war. That's horrible. Why would they ever do that to you? Yeah, that's, that's what we're doing in this country. Hmm? Here's the, okay, so, so from there, let me suggest to you ladies at home, the spirit of this age is compelling you to be discontent with your man. It's the primary thing, to be discontent. He's not as good as he should be. And this age has told you it's okay to tell him that. And so your man goes away every day and he does what he can to fight against this world, to make the best that he can for you and the family. And is he a failure? Yeah. Does he have bad stuff he does? Yeah. Should he repent? Probably. But when he comes home from that long, hard day and he hears about how he's not good enough, well, that's why he goes back out in the garage. That's why he goes down into the cave. Now, I'm talking to the internet here too, so don't get too personal on me. Yeah. But let's remember that the order that God has given us is good. And if you think everything I've said is too over the top, well, just wait to the next couple of verses. Look at chapter six, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Look at verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Look at verse five. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. And then verse nine. Masters, do the same as them and stop threatening. After the order of man and woman in marriage, Paul gives two other orders. That is, structures of creation. So you have man and woman, you have parents and children, and then you have authorities in the public sphere, your boss, your king, and those who are under. So this is all about authority, about how God sets us in order. And wherever you are in that order, you have a duty to the above and you have a duty to the below. If you are below, your duty to the above is not to mutiny. Protect the order. Don't mutiny. If you are above, the order to below is don't be a tyrant. Don't make them mutiny. (laughs) Don't make them fight back. Now, there's been some struggle with that in American churches this life. When do we listen to our authorities and why? But more important than that right now, I want to give you this. If you're going to reject everything I just said about man and woman, you have to reject everything that it then says about parents and children. You have to say that parents have no authority over their children, and the children should be allowed to tell the parents what to do. And before you think that's too crazy, I think you go, I suggest that you go and spend some time after the next sporting event for your kids or grandkids watching everybody else around you and how the kids talk to the parents. And you'll find very, very quickly that just as upside down as our marriages are, so as upside down as our families are. And I would contend that at this point in history, at work, it's starting to get the same way as well. Yeah. Uh, so what is our goal as Christians? To know the order. To see the wisdom of the order. God made man to protect woman. God made woman to comfort man. God made them both to care for the children. And God made all of us to care for each other in the village, the community, the life together as we walk toward the resurrection. It's a glorious, glorious gift. And I'd love to spend more time on it, but we're already at the longest sermon I've ever preached. And I haven't talked about the armor of God yet. Chapter six, verses 10 through 20. I won't read it. You should go read it yourself. Chapter six, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in Jesus Christ and in the power of his might. Put on the entire armor of God by which you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Ah, so 
What do you put on then? The belt of truth around your waist. That means walk out there into this age of anti-truth, this place where people say, that's your opinion, that's your opinion. And remember, there are things that aren't opinions. There are things that are just true. The surest is that he is risen. Hallelujah. Also sure and true is that man is man, woman is woman. Common sense, right? Put it around your waist and then remember that the Bible, we're going to get to the Bible, the Bible is the ultimate truth. The breastplate of righteousness, think of that one as the, the justification of Jesus. It's an old Wesleyan hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Yeah. So you take the blood of Jesus into you as the supper. Think of it as a glowing suit of armor that protects you on every level. So even when you're not using your shield, as we'll talk about in a moment, even if the arrow gets by your shield, think it falls off that justification armor Jesus has put on you. Talked about the shield that's further in the text, but the shield of faith is something you're allowed to use. You don't create your faith. God creates your faith, but you do exercise your faith. So when you go home this week and you grab any of these verses and you read them, you're using your shield of faith. And someday you're going to find an attack, a lie that comes at you. And a Bible verse is going to come into your head and you're going to remember why that lie is a lie. That's using the shield of faith. It's to defend your heart from the assaults of the evil one. Hmm? Similar to the shield of faith is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which is the Bible. Only not for defense, it's for offense. Your sword is for attacking. And Christians, we need to be able to speak these words today if we want to stand. We want to be able to have an answer ready for those who accuse us, that we say to them that indeed Christ is King and Lord and they can do nothing to stop that from happening. And that we will rejoice in this and praise this for all eternity. Hacking and slashing against this world, you will find you have more strength than anybody else. And... Well, you're inspired. That's because on your feet is this readiness given by the gospel of peace. Remember my red shoes? Remember my red shoes? I used to think about those as like fire on my feet. And I am running around excited about the gospel. Uh, why? Because that's what the text says, right? The shoes didn't do that, but it's true. The point of the gospel is that it makes you ready to change. It makes you ready to move. It makes you ready to see. It makes you ready to grab one of those helpless, or excuse me, one of those homeless packets on the way out and go up to somebody this week and give it to them. Again, maybe pull out that Sons of Solomon packet, tell them it'll change their life. That's your feet made ready by the gospel of peace. Uh, I think I've left out the last piece, the helmet of salvation. I already talked about the armor. When the blue goes on, they're going to match. I imagine it being made out of glass, only it's glass as strong as steel. And it's filled with light, sparkly and shiny, nice and fantastic. However you want to imagine, go ahead. However, come with me for a minute. So we all got this blue glowing armor on that nobody can see except the demons and the angels. So wherever you go out in this world, they know. They know. The darkness, it recedes. The light, it goes forward. Victory for Israel is given in your body wherever you go simply by being there. How much stronger will we be if we start believing it and start talking like we know it's true? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God and the power of his might and in the evil day. My friends, St. Paul, stand firm. 63 minutes, you have done your duty today. Alleluia, amen, 